0: We began this Sunday looking at the Psalms, and we will look here for the next seven weeks. Uh, the Psalms are um, so expansive that we can't really, uh, like we've done with other books uh, since I've been here and cover the entire thing, because uh, you're talking about um, over three years' worth of sermons, and so we're not going to quite do that. But we're going to look at seven different Psalms. Over the next seven weeks, and the Psalms are very different than a lot of the other uh, than what we've been looking at so far. Uh, the Psalms are in the Old Testament, and the Psalms were originally written as songs. And so, when we read the Psalms, we should keep that in mind. Um, so there is a different type of language that the writers of the Psalms use. They are dealing; we are dealing with poetry, and so we see the imagery of the poetry. We see uh, the different literary techniques that are present there, and I don't know what most of them are, but you know, I want to sound smart, and an English teacher can explain those better to you. But you know, if we were reading these in the original languages, we would see uh, we would see the rhyme and we would see the rhythm that gets lost because we're reading them in English and not in Hebrew. Uh, so. You may not pick up on all the flow of the psalms, but I would maintain that even translated into the English language, they are still very beautiful. And they give us this extraordinary picture of God. Because the psalmists never talk about God in a small way. They never talk about Him as a small being. They never talk about His power as small and containable, but rather they describe it as vast and amazing. And so as we look through these seven Psalms, I think they're each going to teach us a different lesson, but I think they will teach us things that are very important. So if you have your Bible, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 7 this morning, I invite you to stand with me in reverence to God's Word as we read Psalm 7. And I'm going to read the entire psalm. David writes this psalm. And he writes for us. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart. Rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, and according to the integrity that is within me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O oh, righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, he has bent and readied his bow, he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. And gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks. I will give the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. You may be seated. My hope is this morning that the Lord will add to the reading and the hearing of His Word. There is powerful language in this psalm. As a matter of fact, there is language that if we stop and consider it, it, it gives us this view of God's power. It gives us this high view of what God is going to do and how God is going to deal with the world that we live in. I want to use this psalm this morning and what it teaches us to talk about how you and I as believers in Christ should deal with wickedness in our world. How we should deal with with those who we face, those who we deal with, who do not come to us and at us with the same, the same view that we do. They do not come from the same place. David in this psalm is dealing with an accusation. If you look there at the beginning of the psalm, I'm, I would assume your Bible has this just above the verse 1, we see that this is something that David has saying to the Lord concerning the words of Cush a Benjaminite. Someone has come against him. Someone has made an accusation against David. We don't know what it is. We don't know who this fella is who has made this accusation. But someone has come against him, making an accusation that he believes is false. He believes with all of his heart that he is innocent of this accusation that has come against him, and he is defending himself. But I think the way in which he defends himself is is very insightful for us, because we, in the day and age in which we live, we are constantly facing evil. We are dealing with that reality when we leave the four walls of this room. And if we do not understand that we face evil and that we live in an evil day, we will be unprepared to come against the evil one. We simply aren't going to be ready. And when we go into this battle in which we face, we will be unprepared and we will be unsuccessful. We may have the victory because it is already found in God. But we will not be successful in carrying out the mission that God has for us. Because Jesus has left us in this world. He has left us in an evil world to confront evil with the power and message of the gospel. We are called to go to a world that is lost and dying and share with them the good news that Jesus Christ has died for them. He has died on their behalf. He has taken on the wrath of God. He has faced it. He has died, and we can be forgiven through it. So how do we interact with the world? How do we face evil? I think David's example here is a good one because you and I often, I think, do not treat this very well. If you're like me, you oftentimes are angered by evil. I would even say that many times for us, that is a very righteous anger, and we are very justified in our anger. But I think the way Christians react sometimes brings such shame upon the gospel that it's not effective, and it's not what God would have us to do. And I think David's example here is a good one. Let's begin in verse 1. David says, "O oh Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge; save me from all my pursuers and deliver me." He hasn't even written for us yet what has happened. He hasn't told us yet that he has been accused of something. He has not told us about the accusation against him, he starts out and sets his foundation by saying, God, you are my refuge. David knows, first of all, God is his refuge. He prays that God would deliver him from those that are pursuing him. If you know anything about David's life, there is a period there before he becomes king where he is constantly pursued. He has been anointed king by Samuel, but Saul is still the king of Israel. And so Saul pursues him. He chases him. David hides out in caves. David has several different opportunities where he could have killed Saul, but he doesn't. He is being pursued by people who want him dead. I would say in our spiritual lives that you and I are constantly pursued by evil that would want us dead. Now, in David's case, there are two types of things that they want to happen. One, they would like him to be physically dead, because it's kind of hard to be king when you're dead. Like, you don't normally have to worry about dead people becoming kings. But secondly, they wanted to ruin his reputation. They wanted to ruin who he was. David is described as a man after God's own heart. Even as he was sinful, even as David did things that were not pleasing to God and and were evil before God, God still shows compassion to David and sees him as a godly man. Those who would come after David here would want to ruin that reputation. So he begins, and you and I should begin by understanding that in the world in which we live, in the evil day in which we live, God is our refuge, and we will find refuge nowhere else. It is becoming increasingly clear in our culture and in our society that there is nowhere else Christians can run. We have tried for a long time to run many different places. We have tried to run to people that we thought would help. We tried to run to politicians, and we tried to run to the courts, and we believed they would help us, and they would save us, and they have not. And we should be reminded that here is the king. Here is the one who has the authority and the power, and he says, God will be my refuge. Friends, that's where we should start Secondly, not only does David know that God is our refuge, but in verses 2 through 5, we see that David knows that his reputation is important. He says, deliver me, God. Why? Verse 2, less like a lion, they tear my soul apart. If we think about the way that a lion devours its prey, it is messy and ugly and there is little left in the end. This is what David sees is happening. He sees that his enemies have come around him, the wicked have come around him, and they will tear his soul apart. There will be little left. They will devour him like a lion. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say... In verse 4, if I have repaid my friend, literally the one who is at peace with me, if I have repaid him with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, he says, listen, this is what I want to happen. If I'm guilty of this, he says, let the enemy pursue my soul. Let him trample my life. Let him lay my glory in the dust. David realizes that if he is guilty, then these things need to happen to him. His reputation will be gone. Friends, you and I, when we relate to this world, when we deal with the evil in this world, we should understand very clearly that the way the world looks at us is important. What the world thinks about us is important. Now, most of them think that we're kooks, that we're crazy, that we're praying to some Man up in the sky, they can all think that But what I mean is the way that we react to them Is very important Because when the world says that all we are Are, we're, we're mean They say Christians are mean because they judge people Well you know if all they ever do is see us fight Then they're pretty correct The world will say that we're, we're bigoted because we believe in the sanctity of marriage Or, or we believe that life is precious to God and, and they would say we're bigoted because of that And yet if we don't love our neighbor as ourself Are they not correct? If we do not show the people that we come in contact with Especially the people that we don't agree with Especially the people that hate us If we do not show them the love of Christ Are they not correct? Of course they are They say that the church is full of hypocrites. If we all are hypocrites, and all we ever do is be hypocrites, then aren't they right? Shouldn't we care about our reputation? Shouldn't we care about our testimony? Should we not care about the way the world looks at us? Of course we should. We should do everything within our power to project to them, not us, not what we have done, but the love of Christ. That He has entered into our hearts and He has changed our lives. David knew that this man who was saying these things about him, if he continued to do so, if he was successful in presenting this false information about David, that he would ruin his reputation. And so the next time David got up and said something about God, the next time he got up and talked about the glories of God, or he wrote a psalm about how great his God was, he would look like a hypocrite because this man had showed him to be false. And so David does everything within his power to defend his reputation. He says, God, I I didn't do this. You and I should have a desire as we go into a wicked and evil world that we can say to God, God, I am following you. God, I am putting you in charge of my life. God, you will lead me and guide me. God, you will direct my paths. Because if we give the world the ammunition, they will load the gun and use it against us. And they will do it gladly because they seek to destroy us. The thief, he comes against us and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. David is concerned about his reputation. He knows that God's our refuge. He's concerned about his reputation. Look with me in verse 6. David here begins to understand that how he deals with wickedness is realizing that God must be the judge. God will ultimately be the judge. He says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. David wants to be found blameless. He says so in verse 8. He wants to be found blameless. He wants God to do the judging. Now, don't get me wrong. There are lots of people in the world who want to use certain passages in Scripture to make it out as if Christians have no ability to judge. It's the furthest thing from the truth in the Bible. But oftentimes what you and I do is we make judgments about people, and then we write them off. We make judgments about the spiritual condition of people. We make judgments about where they're at with the Lord. We make judgments about their lifestyle, and then we write them off. We look at someone and we say, this person is a drunkard. That's a sin. They're never going to be anything. They're never going to amount to anything. I don't want anything to do with them. We look at someone else and we see that they are a homosexual and we say that's a sin that God hates. God wants nothing to do with them. We look at another person and we say they have led a life that is wicked. God wants nothing to do with them. We look at the one billion Muslims in the Middle East and we see their sin as they worship a false god and we say he wants nothing to do with them and that's where we've made our mistake because in each one of those situations what god wants us to do is look at them and realize that they are sinful just like we are and what they need most is the thing that we have found what they need most is the hope that you and i have found in christ for the drunkard or the gay or the Muslim, or the pagan, or whatever they are, we need to look at them and realize that God loves them very much. He has created them in His image and He wants them to come to faith in Him. But you and I, we, we like to stand as judge. We like to get up in as high and a lofty position as we can and look down and say, You're not worthy. You're different than me, so you're not worthy. It's not what David does here. He realizes that the person coming against him is evil. He realizes that they're wicked. He realizes what they're trying to do. And he says two things. He says, First, God, I don't want to be found blameful. I want to be found blameless. I want to have nothing on me. I don't want to be guilty before you. God, look at my life. Make sure that I am innocent before you. Make sure that I didn't do this. And he says, God, you judge. God, you awake for me in verse 6. He says in verse 8, the Lord judges the people. He says in verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. See, the problem with you and I deciding that we're going to be judged is that you're sinful. You're very sinful. You're a very, very sinful person. The Bible doesn't make a distinction that there's some that are a little bit sinful, and those are okay, but the people that are really sinful are bad. He says, no, all of us are sinful. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And if it wasn't for Christ, you and I could have no relationship with the living God. We could have no hope. But when we judge, we, we put them over there. They're the sinners, and we're the good people. But God's a righteous judge. He can sit and he can judge perfectly where you and I can't. But he does pray for this, and I think you and I should as well. Look in verse 9. As part of God being a judge, he says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. Friends, you and I should be praying for the end of evil. The end of wickedness. And it won't come. It won't come through anything else but the gospel. It, it won't come through some type of change in our political or our cultural systems. It, it won't come through some type of change in our, in our social behavior. It will only come through a change by the gospel of Christ. So David prays that wickedness would end. And that righteousness would be established. David knows that God's our refuge. He knows his reputation is important. He knows that God will be the judge. And he knows that evil will be judged. If you've kind of got this... This might be the part where you like most, because this is where they get their comeuppance, if you will. Because, see, I hate evil. It lives in my heart as it lives in your heart, and I I hate that it's there, and I hate that it's in the heart of others. And I look forward to the day when it's gone, and you and I live in harmony with each other. We live in perfect relationship with God the Father, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit forever. And look what he talks about, beginning in verse 12. He says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his arrow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Friends, there will be many churches. There will be thousands upon tens of thousands gather this morning to have a service. And they will have worship. And many of them will miss this point. Our God is a good God. He loves His creation. He has created us in His image. And He has died for us. But if a man does not repent, God will judge him harshly. This imagery here is not of pixies and fairies and flowery fields and all that. What is it? It is... God will wet His sword. God will go to battle against those who do not repent. God will pour out fiery judgment. Now some of you may like to hear that. Frankly, it's disturbing. Not because it's out of character for God. I believe it's perfectly in character for God that He would judge. But that there are so many who will not repent. Repent millions upon millions who will not turn to God. Look what happens in evil verse 14. The wicked man conceives evil, so he thinks it up. It 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 comes into his mind. There is imagery here in verse 14 of a woman giving birth. And you see the steps, the evil man can see or the wicked man conceives evil he is pregnant with mischief and he gives birth to lies it's a process it's a process where evil it surrounds someone it consumes them it takes over their mind and their life they they conceive this evil and they're pregnant with mischief and they give birth to lies. And friends, you and I know that evil is foolishness. Look in verse 15. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. It's, it's almost comical if it wasn't sad that, that evil is, is so fruitless It's so pointless that it's like a man who digs a hole, and as he digs it, he he falls into the hole that he has dug and he he can't get out. He has no ability to get away from it. I, I don't think that David writes these words with joy, but rather he writes them as the reality of how God interacts with those who do not turn and follow after him. He does not write this to scare anyone. He doesn't try to scare them into following after God, but rather He just presents the reality that God is a loving and gracious God who will show grace to those who have turned to Him like David has, those who seek refuge in Him like David has, but to the one who does not repent, God shows no mercy. There is no grace. There is no second chance. David says, rather, in verse 16, his mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. He says it's the way that God works. That eventually this evil that this person has done, it will be returned upon him. That he will have to face the consequences of his evil and his mischief. The man has made a plan. He has made a plan to do evil. And it will fall. What prevents David from being in with this man? Remember, David has done evil things. David had an affair. David had someone murdered. David had done great evil, and he had paid for it. He had paid for it with punishment from God. He had paid for it with the loss of his son. He had paid greatly. Why does David not see himself? Why does he not see himself in these verses? Look at verse 17. David thanks God for his righteousness. Now look at it. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. He doesn't say, Thank you for my righteousness. David doesn't say to God, God, thank you that you have made me righteous. God, thank you that, you that I'm such a good person. Thank you that you have overlooked what I've done. He says, I will give the Lord thanks to his righteousness. David realizes that his hope is, his security for the future, His grace, the ability to have a relationship with God, is found in God's righteousness. You and I have the ability to know God, to be forgiven by God, to trust in Him, to follow Him, to lead a life that is pleasing to Him, not because of what we have done, not because of our righteousness, but because of His even when we go back into verse 8 and David says, The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. He is just talking about this one incident. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not guilty of doing what, what Cush said I was going to do. But when he gets to verse 17... And he has talked about the judgment that comes from God. He has talked about how God will punish those who do not repent. He says, God, I thank you for your righteousness. He says, I will sing the praise to the name of the, of the Lord Most High. He says, God, my thanks is for your righteousness. Friends, you and I are daily facing an evil world. A place that is unrecognizable from a generation or two ago. It's not really surprising. As as our churches have become less effective, as we have reached less people with the gospel, it just means there's more people out there who have not turned to God. So it's not surprising to me that because of that we have an increase in all of the things that you and I look at as evil. All of the things that God looks at as evil. And they have been happening since that moment in Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent in talking with Adam and Eve tells them if you, if you eat this you, you won't die. From the moment when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell into sin, and our world became fallen, it has been bad. It's not many verses later until a brother kills another brother. It's not many verses until we see God destroy the world with the flood because evil had become so pervasive on the earth. You don't have to go far in each book of the Bible to see where human beings continually conceive evil. Where human beings are pregnant with mischief and give birth to lies. We don't have to go very far to see that. But you and I have a blessed gift. Because the Bible records for us that God sent His Son who had always been who was present at creation, who had spoken, everything that is was made. And through him, nothing, nothing exists that he did not make. And that man named Jesus lived a perfect life. He was without sin. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, except he did not sin. And because of that, when he was arrested and beaten and crucified, When he died, you and I could have life. When he died, God put upon him the penalty for all of these sins that David is describing. All of this evil that David describes was placed on Christ at the cross. And on the third day, he arose. And in him we have life. We're going to encounter evil. We're going to encounter amazing wickedness. But what you and I have is the power of the gospel to respond to that evil. We have the power of the message of Christ. If you and I respond the way they have responded to us, if we come at this and we we sin in our anger, if we come at this and we treat them poorly because they have shown us contempt or hated us, we have no part. But in the gospel we, we can show, even those who hate us immensely, the love of Christ. I love what Jesus says as he's, as he's dying. There's a, there's a sinner on one side of him, a thief, and, and he pleads for forgiveness. And Jesus promises him that. He promises him that that day they would be together in paradise. He looks out on those who have, have beaten him, who have tortured him, who have shown him no mercy, and he says, Father, forgive them. Friends, that's how you and I should interact with the evil and wickedness of this world. They've got no hope. You're going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to go to wherever it is tomorrow to a meeting or to a club or to a sporting event. And you're going to go and you're going to spend time with people who are lost in their sin. And they are dying. They are on a road that leads straight to hell and eternal separation with God. Shouldn't that fact clarify why they act the way they do? Shouldn't that clarify why they're treating you the way they are? Shouldn't we respond with the message of the gospel? Shouldn't we respond with the only message that will give them hope? The only thing that will give them peace. And the only thing that will save their soul. Friends, our goal our commitment our mission must be to treat evil with the gospel they don't need self-help they don't need a 12-step program they need christ and friends you and i have that message will you bow your heads with me as we pray Heavenly Father, God, we're grateful that we're grateful that in you we have hope. In you we have peace. God, in in you, when we face an evil day, when we face the trials and difficulties of this world, God, we don't do it alone. In you, we take refuge. In you, we have our strength and our grace. God, help us to confront evil with the gospel. To confront evil with, God, your goodness and your mercy. God, help us to protect our reputation to the world. Help us to guard it with everything that we have. God, let us be known as gospel people, people centered on your word and on your message. God, let us show love where we are shown hate. And God, give us the grace for every day. Lord, I thank you for who you are. God for what you're doing, and I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd stand with me, I want to encourage you this morning if you if you're aware of relationships where you have you have shown you have shown evil for evil. Where people have treated you poorly. And that's what you've given them back. You have returned that upon their head. You have put that back in their face. Let me promise you that God wants you to mend that relationship. They may be the vilest, most hateful people that you've ever met. But God tells us to show love to those who offend us. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I know some of you don't have a relationship with him, The reality of these verses are true. There's no hope without Christ. There's no future. There's no forgiveness. There's no second chance. There's no do-over. There's nothing without Him. But in Him, there's everything. If that's you, would you respond this morning? Would you let me share with you how you can know Christ? How you can be forgiven? How you can have life in Him? That's what He's offering us this morning. Would you respond as we sing? We're going to get ready to go um, I pray that that you have listened to God and responded to him and you know we're going to face it you're going to face it tomorrow we're going to face dealing with people who have no hope and friends we're we've got the message and God has given us the opportunity will we respond or will we just We just blow them off. We just set them aside and not worry. Let's respond. Let's respond by sharing with them how they can have hope. Josh is going to, uh, they're going to play a song as our closing prayer. And when it's over, you're dismissed. But I pray that God would continue to speak to you. He would continue to challenge your heart. And I pray that you come back again. Hope you'll stay around for Sunday School and Life Application Group. I'm glad that you're here and have come to worship. And pray that God will continue to work in our church. That he'll continue to show us his goodness and mercy. And that we'll just rest in his love. They're going to sing and we'll be dismissed.